Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke 22 as we look at verses 7 through 23, a wonderful word picture of grace, a wonderful word picture of grace. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, it's a study uh, tracking state prisoners released in 2005 found that within nine years of release, about 83% of released prisoners were arrested at least once for a new offense, recidivism. People who commit crimes, they get out, they tend to go back to the same behavior. Now, this is not surprising, or at least it shouldn't be. Our penal system is designed to incarcerate, not to rehabilitate those who commit crimes. This should also not be surprising to parents of toddlers or teens. We punish, we discipline, we correct their behavior, only to uh, witness them fall back into the same destructive habits over and over again. Of course, even those of us who might consider ourselves upstanding citizens and good Christians, good people, are prone to this same cycle. Behavior modification only works to a small degree. What we need is not an attitude adjustment or behavioral conditioning, but a new heart. We needed a new savior. We needed a new heart. Now, we come to Luke's record now of the suffering and death of Christ. He's getting near to the end of his gospel. He has been, uh, uh, um, he's been uh, examining and talking to eyewitness accounts, and now he's getting to the point where Christ is betrayed and ready to die. As Jesus' death draws near, the scene shifts from the temple area to the city of Jerusalem. He is now in the city of Jerusalem, and the emphasis shifts from his teaching uh, to the events surrounding his death. In our passage last week, Luke wrote of the conspiracy of convenience between two sets of hardened hearts that seek to silence Jesus permanently. Their motives and actions, speaking of the religious leaders in Judas, were fueled by jealousy, envy, fear, covetousness, and greed. In our passage today, Jesus now is going to enter Jerusalem. Remember, he would stay at night at the Mount of Olives, and then during the day he would go into the city, and he's ready to fulfill the Father's redemption plan. As his arrest, his trial, his torture, and crucifixion is near, he's going to spend the last night with his disciples eating the Passover meal. So with that, Luke chapter 22, it's here on the monitor, the first part of the verse, 7 through 13. Let's read that silently with me as I read out loud. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? They didn't know where it was going to be at. He said to them in verse 10, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture and the one we're going to read here in the later. 
And Father, as we consider the Lord's Supper, what Jesus was doing that night, I pray you open our minds and hearts to that event almost 2,000 years ago and what it means to us today, how we apply it, how it's profitable, how it can strengthen us, how it can lead us to worship and a greater desire to serve you. We thank you for Luke's record. We thank you for the eyewitnesses' accounts. And again, for the Holy Spirit who brings and preserves it for our use this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So here we are. It's Thursday, the 14th day of the Hebrew month. It's time to sacrifice the Passover lamb that we just read about in Exodus in our scripture reading. It could not be eaten until after sundown when, according to the Jewish counting, the next day would begin with the Passover. It's Thursday night at twilight. It becomes then Friday for them. Jesus' instruction on the place where they were to eat assured privacy and secrecy since the people did not know, Peter and John did not know where it was. So Jesus assures of a place that would be private and secret as no one would know where they would be. Remember, Judas is looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. However, he's clueless to where they will eat the dinner so that he is unable to inform his co-conspirators. Hence why Peter and John say, well, where are we eating at? It seems if Jesus had made a previous arrangement to procure a room for the festivities. With the influx of visitors from around the world to celebrate the Passover, you might remember from last week, there could be millions, um, uh, more than several million people that would be there. It was common for those with larger rooms to rent those out, kind of a, an old ancient Airbnb, so to, be, so to speak. He sends Peter and John to finish the preparations for the meal. In a demonstration of his omniscience, though, he instructs Peter and John to look for a man carrying a jar of water. Now, this would be a strange sight, since carrying a jar of water was typically a woman's job in that culture. A man would not be carrying a jar of water. He might carry a leather bag full of water, but he would not carry a jar of water. But what's also we see is Jesus knew exactly when that man would be, would be moving from one place to the other and what he would be doing. Luke records that Peter and John found the man and the room just as Jesus predicted, and they begin to prepare the, the Passover meal. So I want to answer and ask and answer some questions today. The first one is, what is the Passover? You and I don't celebrate the Passover. We hear of it. We see that we're, we're, we know it. But what is it? Douglas Magnum writes that the Passover is, and you see here on a monitor, the first part, is that it's a sacred observance in Judaism that commemorates the climatic 10th plague in the book of Exodus, where Yahweh punishes Egypt by killing all the firstborn of both animals and man, but passes over the firstborn of Israel, resulting in the Israelites' deliverance from slavery in Egypt. We read that just a little bit earlier in our scripture reading. It's on the 14th day of the first month, the observance is instituted within the narrative framework of the Exodus story. Again, it's the 10th and final plague, and this was a chance for God to protect his children. On the night of the plague, the Israelites were instructed to stay in their homes after slaughtering a lamb and placing its blood on the lintel, talking about the top of the doorpost, and then on the sides of the doorpost. The blood was to be assigned that distinguished the Israelites and separated them from the intended victims of the plague. 
But as we'll see, that this here is more than just a regular observance of that event. This is a special Passover for Jesus and his disciples as he takes what was an old tradition of celebration and commemoration and he makes it something new. So with that, we're now in Luke chapter 22. And as we go to verse 14, we see now that Jesus is going to institute what you and I know as the Lord's Supper or Communion. In verse 14, we read, And when the hour came, time to eat, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not eat of the fruit of this vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it, and he said to them, or gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is very familiar to us. We just did it last week. And likewise, after the cup they had, they had eaten, they said, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, most of us recall this famous painting there. I think it's here on the screen. Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Lord's Supper, The Last Supper. Most of us are familiar with that. Thomas, Thomas Schweiner notes that this is actually a formal dinner setting. The disciples did not set in a line like that as you and I might set, but they likely set in a circle supporting their heads on their hands with their feet stretched out behind them. Such seating arrangements were reserved for special occasions. He goes on to write that the feast points ahead to the messianic meal he will share with the disciples in the consummated kingdom. We're thinking of the marriage supper of the Lamb found in Revelation. In an action symbolic of his death, Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it, saying that bread represents his body which will be given for them and should be eaten in his remembrance. He goes on to write, and after the meal, he takes a cup, declaring that the cup represents his blood, which is shed for them in the new covenant. In the slaying of the Passover lamb, Jesus here is anticipating his death. He will be that final Passover lamb. Incorporated, incorporated into the life of the Hebrews in Exodus, codified by the law of Moses, observed for centuries, the Passover supper now finds its completion as Jesus is that final Passover lamb. Now, we covered, Landon covered the importance of the Lord's Supper back in August. He did a great job on that. So I'm not going to take the time to go over each of the elements and other than to emphasize that the bread and wine are representative of Christ's body and blood. It does not become the actual flesh and blood of Jesus as the Roman Catholics and others might determine. This sweet but mysterious moment, though, is broken by the disturbing news that one of them is a betrayer. In verse 21, as we continue in this passage, but behold, Jesus says, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. This is a curse, really, on Judas. And then verse 23, look at this. And they all began to question one another, which of them 
It could be who is going to do this. So you can imagine they're sitting in a circle. Jesus says this, and all of a sudden you can see their eyes looking at one another. Well, who's the one that's going to betray him? But yet they were still clueless. Even when Judas left and Jesus says, go do what you have to go do, they still did not realize that it would be Judas. Again, quoting Dr. Schreiner, he notes that Jesus, after presenting the cup and saying, drink, this is my blood that was shed for you, Jesus reveals that his betrayer is present. Still, what you and I understand is that that treachery does not undermine God's purposes, but fulfills God's plan. Though the traitor himself will be the object of God's punishment upon this pronouncement, his disciples fall in dispute of which one it's going to be. Now, again, as I said earlier, there's several questions that I want to answer this morning. I want to understand what is that covenant? What does it mean to us? So first, I'm going to ask, what is a covenant? Paul Henry writes that a covenant is entered into two or more parties in order for there to be a clear understanding and agreement around the terms within the covenant. The oaths taken bind the ones swearing them to perform the obligations of a covenant. So for you and I, when we usually think of an agreement between two people, we think of contracts, right? I signed a contract. I signed a a lease for an apartment or a contract uh, for a mortgage or something of that nature. Now, a contract usually says, here's what the parties do. You do this, I do that. But a contract is not always binding. It can be broken. You can sue to get yourself out of it. However, and many times this is the difference, is a covenant, though, is obligations that neither of them get out of. It is eternal. In biblical covenants, it is something that God says, I will do. Most times they are unconditional, though there are some unconditional ones in the Bible. And that's, again, let me just say on the side note, that's where we come to, is marriage is one of the covenants of the Bible. It's not a contract. It is a covenant coming together, outlining the obligations of each party. It's not something that we're to put away, but it's something that we are to embrace. Now, this is going to be kind of wonky, but I want you to stay with me. By the way, you know, I forgot to do this. Um, Lando, can you, Lando, can you help me out? Can you go to the back table? And there is a, some sheets of paper that say biblical covenants. Could you just pass them out? I know this isn't classwork, but I meant to tell you earlier is I have some, I have some things to help you through this. Can you take that and just pass them around real quickly? Can I get a volunteer to help them real quick? Just make it real quick since we got two aisles. Yeah, that was right there. Yeah, just pass them out. Because I want to talk about the six biblical covenants, and I want to give a summary of kind of each one. Now, you've heard me say uh, that the story of the Bible is very simple. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, there's one story. It has a lot of different stories, but it has one story. Does anyone want to shout out what that is? That's right. The prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. That's the story of the Bible. The covenant, then, is an outworking of that story. It's telling us how God is going to slay the dragon and win the girl. So with that, we have four chapters in the Bible. I know you're talking about all the different books, but it's creation, where God created. It's the fall, where man fall. It's the redemption story, or the redemption theme, which is the majority of the Bible. And then it's recreation. It's the new creation, the consummation. 
So the covenants help us move through the story of the Bible. So uh, Irvin Butznitz defends the six covenants or defines the six covenants. The first covenant, as you may see, is the Noah, Noah, Noah covenant. God showed his gracious mercy towards all mankind, both redeemed and unredeemed, causing it to reign on the just and the unjust and assuring the ongoing, uninterrupted cycles of the season. This is when God put a rainbow in the sky and says, I will no longer destroy the earth by flood. We then move to the Abraham covenant. Do I have a, a clip of that, by the way, of those covenants? I think I have five of the six there. You might be able to see them there. Is the Abraham covenant, where God demonstrated his unmerited favor on one man and said, I am going to bless you. It is in your name, in your family, that I will bless the earth. It came included children, land, and blessing. By the way, it's sad to say, and I'd like for you to be praying for Israel, that land is Israel. It's under attack once again. Number three is the priestly covenant. That's God promised the perpetual priesthood in the line of Phineas. In other words, there would be a final priest, and we know eventually that becomes Christ. In the Mosaic covenant, God revealed his holiness and the heinousness of sin. He gives the daily sacrifices that provide a constant reminder of the need for the shedding of blood, for the remission of sin, and the propitiation or the putting off of or the satisfaction of God's wrath. Then we come to the David covenant. That's where God promised that there would be a ruler that comes from the, land of David, from the line of David, which we know is Jesus Christ, and he will reign. And then we come to the new covenant. <clears throat> this is where he pours out his grace. It's a promise through which he puts his law within his people, writing it on his heart. Now, again, I know that's kind of wonky, so I'm going to lead you to those papers to kind of look at this week. But that's how God worked through man in doing the storyline of the Bible. So with that, I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. It's important for us to understand what is Jesus doing here in Luke chapter 22. So as you and I turn to Jeremiah 21, we see a prophecy of this, what's called the new covenant. God informs the prophet of a new covenant that will replace the Mosaic covenant. As we have learned before, the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> they had no power to enable a person to obey its strict commands. It could not change the heart. It could not make one holy. As you and I go to Jeremiah 31, look at verse 31. The Holy Spirit says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was her husband, declares the Lord. He says, for this covenant, verse 33, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declare the Lord, that I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall no longer teach or each one teach his neighbor and his each brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. You might want to underline that last line. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins 
no more. That's so important. So, yes, that was Jeremiah 31. 31 through 33. Or 30, uh, 35, I think. 34, thank you. So covenants were how God worked. God made obligations. And you'll see in your sheet that I gave you that there were some that were unconditional. God says, I will do this. I will be faithful, even if you're unfaithful. However, there were a few that were conditional. If you do this, I will do that. If you break this covenant, then here are the curses and the blessings that you will receive. But now we see a new covenant. In other words, God is now going to deal with us in a whole different way than he did with Israel in the past. So the second question is then, what is the new covenant? And you'll see it here on the monitor is that the Lexham Bible Dictionary defines it as, is a covenant is between, between God and his people. That's anticipated in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the new. The new covenant involves these things. Ready? Forgiveness of sin, number one spiritual transformation, number two, and the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. So the new covenant say, I am going to do something different. The Mosaic law, those other laws could not do this. It could not make you holy. And that's what the Bible says, right? Be ye holy as I am holy. Jesus says no one can see the Father unless he is like the Father, perfect. The Mosaic law could not do that. The priestly covenant could not do that. The Abraham covenant could not do that. Nor could the, the covenant with Noah or David. It could not do. It failed in doing that. Wayne Grumman, who I really like, defines it this way. He says, a covenant in which Christ's atoning death covers all of the believer's sins and the Holy Spirit empowers the believer to fulfill the righteous demands of the law. So you and I needed something to help us do this. We needed the Holy Spirit. We needed atoning death. The death of bulls and goats were not able, were not capable of making us fully right with God. In other words, Jesus was able to do something that the blood of goats and bulls could not do. He finished or he, he, or he provided what God required. So that's the first. What is the new covenant? It is a frame in which God makes us right with him. The third question someone might ask is, why do we need a new covenant? If we already have four of them already, why do we need something new? Why they do need, why? Because we need a new heart. Again, scripture informs us that our hearts are evil. They're desperately wicked, unable to please and submit to God. Paul warns us that we are like sheep disregarding the commands of the great shepherd. We're more interested in going our own way. Our minds are hostile to God. We are sinful to the, and hostile to the things of him. I don't have this on, a, on, a, on the screen, but again, Wayne Grumman writes, what is sin? Sin is our failure to conform to God's moral law in our actions, in our attitudes, in our nature. So in other words, God has given his law and he's given it from the garden. Remember, he says, do not eat. But however, our actions, our attitudes, our natures cannot conform to God's word. Now you say our actions, right? These are the things that we do. It's when we're angry. It's when we reach out, when we're bitter. 
These, these are things in which we, we, we act out. I mean, so we, we try behavior modification, hence why recidivism is so high, because we just try to change behavior. But we know that we can only change behavior for only so long before we revert back to who we are. You know, people say, well, this is who I once was. But again, we're still that person unless we have a new heart. But then we say, well, well, attitude adjustment. Because the only reason that you and I do things is because of our heart, because of our attitude. We want these things. We desire these things. So we do attitude adjustments, right? So for children, we might use corporal punishment. For prisoners, we might use jail. But again, their heart doesn't change. And that's the reason is because their nature cannot change. As God says, can a, shepherd, can, a, can, was it, can a leopard change his spots? No. Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? No. Can Rob make himself three inches taller? No. You got the answer. I can't. I can't grow any more hair. No, how much Rogaine you may throw on there. It ain't growing back. I need a new head. That's probably what I need. But as we see here, we need something. Our hearts are wicked. King David understood this truth hundreds of years before Jeremiah received this promise of the new covenant. When he wrote in Psalms 51.7, you'll see it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God, this you will not despise. You see, now Jesus now is coming to fulfill what Jeremiah hundreds of years prior said would come. This is a time for the new covenant. The old covenants are not going away. They're just going to be supplanted by something much greater, mainly the Mosaic law. Jesus has now come to fulfill that wonderful promise. The author of Hebrew writes, For since the law, speaking of the Mosaic covenant, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form. In other words, it's just a shadow. Just as you and I see a shadow, it's not the real plate, the real person. He says of this res, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who are drawn near. You could kill all the bulls, the goats, the doves, and everything you want to do. It was not going to make you perfect. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered, the author of Hebrews says, since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Obviously, he says, it's not working. But in these sacrifices, by doing them every year, there is reminder of sins every year, as if we really need that reminder, right? I think I'm reminded of my sins each and every moment, even behind this pulpit, looking in the mirror. We're reminded of our sins. The Holy Spirit goes on to say it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So God says, I have a better plan. I have a different one. I have a permanent plan. And let's make no mistake. Sin, the penalty of sin is death. There is no remission. There is no a cleansing of sin without death. Hence why something has to die. Hence, when God said, do not eat or you will what? Surely die. The soul that sins, it will die. The wages of sin is death. All of us are born to die in sin, except for the promise of the new covenant of Jesus Christ. 
The author goes to inform us, if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 8, if you're a speed, speed turner, Hebrews chapter 8, in verse 6, it says, Christ has attained a ministry that is as much more excellent than those the old, because it meditates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For that the first covenant has been faultless, there has been no occasion to look for a second. You and I think of that. If, if, if I have a good working car, I don't need a second car. That one works well. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So why do we need a new covenant? Because within our hearts, there is no desire to please God. We can go back to the old system of trying to do all the Ten Commandments, but what does the Bible say? If you fail or break one of the Ten Commandments, you're guilty of what? All of them. All of them. Exactly. And so we need to recognize that. What you and I need is not new promises. Honey, I promise I'll do better. Or to our children, I know I can be a better father to your word. I, you need a new heart. Not about just doing better. You and I need to be better. And the only way we can do that is if God comes in and gives us a new heart. We then come to the fourth question. So what does the Passover and the new covenant have in common? What is Jesus teaching here? Because he's using the old to teach us about the new. So what do these two things have in common? Well, Tom Schreiner, again, I, I just love his stuff and indebted to him. He writes this, I believe some of it's going to be on the monitor. He says, Jesus' blood inaugurates the new covenant, just as the blood inaugurates the first covenant. For Israel could not enter into the covenant with the Lord apart from the shedding of blood. In other words, covenants were almost always instituted by blood. The new covenant alludes to Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where the Lord promises to enact a new covenant with his people of covenant in which the law is written on their heart. What that means, there would be a desire to do that. There would be an ability now to do that which God has called us to do. In this new covenant, the forgiveness of sins is secured. And Luke sees this forgiveness as secured by Jesus' blood. Blood uh, refers to Jesus' sacrificial death as the blood of sacrifices is shed to procure forgiveness of sin. The cup also harkens back to the Old Testament text in which the cup stands for the wrath of God that's being poured out on those who have rebelled and sinned against him. Jesus takes it upon himself the wrath his people deserved for the sins so that they can be spared on judgment day. So as we see this event that's taking place that we celebrate at the beginning of each month, what we're celebrating is the new covenant. You and I today, as we look at the storyline of the Bible, the prince slays the dragon and wins the girl. We saw creation took place in Genesis 1-2. We see the fall of man in Genesis 3. Then we see the redemption story from Genesis 3-15 all the way until where we are there. We see the story of redemption with the promise then of the recreation or the consummation, when God will bring us all and make all things new. You and I are living within the new covenant. The covenant of David is still there as Jesus is the king. The priestly one is there as Jesus is the high priest. And then we think of the other one, the high priest, king, and 
prophet. Jesus is that prophet who shares with us the new covenant. And what this new covenant does is we go back. Can we go back to uh, um, uh, the Lexham Bible Dictionary? Because I want to just go back through that real quickly and give us those three things. It's the covenant between God and his people. The new covenant involves forgiveness of sin. And that's where I want to get to you today. The Bible says that the penalty of sin is death. But God says if we, are, if we confess, our, confess our sin, that he is faithful to forgive us our sin. Jesus, through his body and through his blood, has now been able to satisfy the wrath of God. And that's what we have. And I heard, uh, I was talking to Sabino a couple days ago, and just hearing how his new heart, how God has enabled him to do things that he's never been able to do before and see God working in his heart. I've seen that with many of you as we sit and counsel, is that what you and I need is the forgiveness of sin more than anything else. For one day we will stand before God and give an account. He will judge the living and the dead. And he will ask, how can I let you, or why should I let you into my heaven? And the only answer we have is because my sins have been forgiven. Christ has been my righteousness. And in this, Jesus is saying, is this bread represents my body, which is broken. We'll go more into this in detail as we continue through Luke chapter 22 and 23 and 24. But it's the forgiveness of sin. But it's also, number two, the spiritual transformation. That who is born again regenerates, is sanctified, is new. We become a new creature. He says we've been transferred from the darkness, uh, domain of darkness to the domain of light. And this is what it is for each and every one of us as we become a new creature. The old things are passed away. In 1 Corinthians, he tells us, he says, these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, you no longer do these. You are a new creature. You've been washed. You've been regenerated. You're new. So I want to share with you, this is the wonderful gift. As you and I think of the Lord's Supper each and every month, is that we're recognizing that we are not the people we were 10 years ago, five years ago, five weeks ago is that we're continually loving and becoming more like Christ. But also we see the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. You and I might be sitting here and says, what does that have to do with me? Because you and I, our salvation, our, our glorification is tied into what God is doing with Israel. If God is faithful to Israel, he's faithful to us. And God is faithful In Christ, we see that in the new covenant that there are more blessings than there ever could be by just legalism, by just following a set of rules. We see that God is revealed more fully to us through Christ, through Christ's death. He's poured out the Holy Spirit on all of his people through the new covenant. His laws now have been written on our hearts that we may be able to defeat Satan and praise God. It's also an eternal covenant in which it never will be disregarded. So the question as we come is, how is this profitable for us today? Well, number one, the Passover festival looked back and celebrated God's liberation of Israel from Egypt. Every year, Israel would come to there, and they would remember how God had delivered them. In the same way, as you and I come to the Lord's Supper, to communion, we are commanded to remember the death of Christ and his promise to return. 
is a source of comfort. It's a source of encouragement. It's a source of strength, knowing that he's coming again and that he has forgiven us our sins. He may, has made us new. Number two, the elements of the Lord, or number three, the elements of the Lord's Supper represent the very stuff of life. When you and I think of bread, what does Jesus say? You know, man should not live by bread alone, by the word of God. But as we think of bread, we all need bread. We need, we need food. We need stuff. It's more than just the substance of bread of wheat and, and corn and so on and so forth. But it's, it's the very stuff of life. Jesus is saying, if you eat of me, you will never again be hungry. We think of the cup. It's that which refreshes. It's the same way Jesus says, if you drink from me, you will never thirst again. It's recognizing that we are satisfied by the works of Christ. Then fourthly is my last encouragement. We'll get ready here to close here in a moment. This is a little bit uh, uh, shorter one this morning. But you and I, as we come together for the Lord's Supper, it's not an individual meal, but a family church meal involving fellowship with other believers. When we come together, we are covenant together. Why we encourage you to join us in membership because we are covenant together. We are representing what it's going to be like in heaven. So when we take of it, that's why he says, self-examine yourself. If there's bitterness, if there's anger, he says, leave your gift at the altar and come and take care of it. Then come back and take care of worship. But we need to recognize that we're here together. You know, as we come to a close, Romans 3, 23 through 25, says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, there's a big word, propitiation. It's an old fancy term that just means satisfied to find favor. In other words, God now looks at us with favor, no longer as children of wrath, disobedient children, hostile to him, but he sees us as his adopted children, whom he loves, chosen, redeemed, and glorifying one day. As we come to a close, as I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way up and Randy, I want to just challenge you. The new covenant that we read of today is the covenant that has changed our lives, changed our hearts, so that we may glorify God. May we give glory to God for that new covenant. With every head bowed and every eye closed, Randy, would you come and share and close us in prayer? We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.